All right, guys. As you guys find your seats back here, I'm going to go ahead and get started, man. It's so cool to be with y'all. I've known Charles for a long time. I've known Jordan uh, since before he was really walking with Jesus. So if you want some good stories uh, about Jordan, I've got the dirt on him. So uh, find me. I won't say that from the microphone. That'll cost you a little bit of money. So find me afterwards. Highest bidder gets the best story. Uh, I, I lived with Charles for a little while. I'd already graduated college, and I was actually working at the time. And uh, not the most glorious job, but I was working as a, uh, in, the, in a jail, as, uh, not as an inmate, but as a uh, jailer, just so that's clear. And I would work the night shift, and, uh, and so I would sleep. You know, I'd get home like at 6 a.m., and then I'd sleep all throughout the day. And Charles would come in and, and wake me up and be like, what are you doing? It's noon. What are you doing with your life? And I'm like, well, I'm working, and I need to sleep until like 2. But anyways, side story. Uh, so you guys may have heard that uh, many of your wonderful, wonderful staff people come from this little tiny no-name university in Texas, uh, of which I'm also an alumni of. And the Lord used Chi Alpha to change my heart and change my life and set me uh, in a course and in a direction that I would have never, ever guessed in all of my years. So for the last three years, my family and I have lived in Cairo, Egypt. And, uh, and so that's where we've been. That's where we call our home. Uh, about four months, we're getting ready to head back there uh, for another stint, another uh, three to four years. And we love it there. It's very, very interesting. If you could, Sean, could you put that picture up of my family? Let's do that. Let's see if we can get it up there so you can see a picture of my girls. There we go. All right, so my beautiful wife, Kimberly, who I also met in Chi Alpha. Uh, this is a good place to find your wife or your husband. Uh, and then uh, I've got two, two little girls. Uh, Hannah is four years old, and she was born about a year before we left for, for Egypt, and so she was one years old when we got there. For the most part, all she's known in her life is uh, living in Egypt. And then Rebecca is almost two, and she was actually born there. So she's our little Egyptian baby, and uh, she's definitely only known Egypt all of, their, all of her life, which is pretty cool. Also a little bit strange to think about that as, as obviously I'm an American and uh, from Texas. And so while we're back, that we want them to know their roots, right? They got to at least know where their parents are from. So we're like trying to put a lot of Tex-Mex, Chick-fil-A, football, trying to like shove that down their throat so they know where they're from. Uh, all that being said... Uh, there's this quote by uh, one of my missionary heroes named Samuel Zwemer. He says this, Missionaries all have inverted homesickness. They have a desire to call that place home, which was most in need of the gospel. And so that's what we feel. Even though like, we feel home in the U.S., we feel home in Texas, our desire is to feel at home in these places that don't have the gospel. So that's why we do what we do. Uh, you may have heard of this, may not have. For those of you who've been to the world, went to the World Mission Summit, you probably saw our booth. But I'm part of a church planning initiative called Live Dead, and uh, and so just a brief overview of this. But Live Dead basically exists uh, because of a couple of statistics, and I want to share those with you. The first one is this number three billion. There are three billion people who live in such a way that they don't have access to the gospel. That's 40% of the world's population that live in such a way that unless a missionary, somebody from outside of their culture, somebody from outside of their known circles goes into their culture and shares the gospel, they'll never, ever hear the name of Jesus. Did you know that 3 billion people live without access to Jesus? Think about how many times you've heard a sermon about who Jesus is. Think about how many Bibles you may have in your house or how many books you may have about who Jesus is. And 3 billion people have never heard once the name of Jesus. The next statistic is this. This is pretty crazy. Only 10% of all foreign missionaries go to these 3 billion people. Only 10%. 90% of the missionaries that we send out go to places that already have access to the gospel. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that they should stop going to where they're going, all right? We should still send people to Ecuador, but we ought to send people to Egypt, too. We should still send people to South America, but we also better send a lot of people to Saudi Arabia. 
We need to go to scary places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan because these are the places where the gospel is not. So that's what Live Dead is about. We're going to go to the places where the gospel has not been presented because most of all, number one, is that Jesus is worthy and he deserves a voice among these people. So that's what we seek to do. That's what we're doing. Uh, my wife and I lead a training center in Cairo, Egypt for Live Dead. We train up uh, people to go and work in the Arab world. They learn Arabic. Uh, they learn how to share the gospel with people who've never heard it before in that part of the world. Uh, and then also we have the unique privilege of leading the church planning efforts in Egypt. And so we're seeing some cool things happen. I'm going to share some stories from what's been going on in just a little bit. But I also am going to share a challenge with you guys tonight on the, on the idea and the lines of missions, if you'll allow me. Before that, I just want to share a little bit about Cairo and why I love it, why I love Egypt so much, and the uniqueness of it. Now get this, Egypt has 90 million people in it, the entire country, 90 million. That's one-third of all of the Arabic-speaking world's population. So if you, if you add up the 15 countries, their populations that speak Arabic, one-third of all of them live in Egypt. Beyond that, Cairo itself, one city, the city that I live in, get this, has 25 million people. 25 million people. I think somebody told me that West Virginia has around 2 million people in it. I'm not sure. So if you can do the math. Uh, to put it in a picture for me, Texas actually has around 26 million people. So it's like all of those people living in one city. Everybody lives on top of each other. Everybody lives in high-rise buildings. My, my family and I lived on the 13th floor of an apartment building while we were there. I'm from a town in Texas that has about 2,000 people. So it's kind of a jump from 2,000 to 25 million. Now, the other cool thing about Egypt is it has some spiritual significance to it. And it's significant in two religions. The first one, as you might guess, is Islam. And uh, in Egypt is the oldest university in the world, uh, Al-Azhar University. It's an Islamic university that trains up and they send out, get this, 200 Islamic missionaries every single year. And the people who go there and train aren't just Arabs, they're Europeans, they're Sub-Saharan Africans, they're Indonesians, and they're Americans that go there and train and how to teach people about Islam. Uh, and then the other interesting thing about this is that the Muslim Brotherhood, you might have heard of them, was created in Egypt. And all of these guys that you see on the news, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, all of them trace their ideology back to the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's really interesting on all levels, very spiritually significant for Islam. Now, it does have another spiritual significance, one that if you are a student of and have read your Bibles, you probably already know. That if you look in the book of Genesis, in this great book, starting there, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all spent time in Egypt. Joseph and the twelve patriarchs were there. Uh, Moses was raised as an Egyptian. You all know the story of Moses, Joshua, Caleb. Going forward into the book, uh, Jeremiah spent time there, the prophet. There's a famous uh, prophecy by Isaiah. This is God speaking through the mouth of Isaiah that says this. It says, blessed be Egypt, my people. So God calls Egyptians his people. Really interesting. All right, help me out on this one. The only place that Jesus visited other than Israel was Egypt, right. You got that one right. Good job. So when he was a boy, right, if, you ever, if you've read the New Testament, you've read the Gospels, when he was a boy, uh, King Herod was trying to take his life. And so he fled to Egypt for safety. If you go forward into the New Testament even more, at the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up, right? He's like full of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty crazy. If you've ever read it, it says there's tongues of fire on their head. That's pretty crazy. I, I can't even imagine that. But he gets up full of the Holy Spirit, and he preaches uh, this first Pentecostal sermon about being baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. And the Bible names specific ethnicities and nationalities that were present at the day of Pentecost, who heard Peter's message. And one of those is Egyptians. There were Egyptians who heard the first message preached by Peter. One more piece of church history for you is this. 40 AD, all right, so 40 years after Jesus died, he was crucified, right, resurrected from the dead. He appeared to the disciples and then ascended into heaven. 40 years after that, the disciple Mark, the same disciple that the book of Mark uh, was written by, 
He went to Alexandria, Egypt. It's on the coast, right? This was founded by Alexander the Great. And, uh, and he was there, and he looked around, and he saw something really interesting. You see, there's a lot of tombs and temples left in Egypt that were left over by the pharaohs. If you go, they're everywhere. If you ever come to Cairo, which you guys all have an open invitation, I'll take you to the pyramids, okay? They're really close to where we live. And these are just tombs that are left over by the pharaohs. And they thought if they built these gigantic structures that would last for a long time and put a lot of goods into it, it would help them to get into the afterlife. Mark looked around and saw all of these tombs and temples left over. And he thought Egyptians really care about eternity. And so what he did was he began to preach this message. Jesus Christ was the son of God. He came down to earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, was born of a virgin, and and he died on a cross. He paid the penalty for all of your sins, and his blood was so precious and so, so full of worth that he purchased every single one of your passages into eternity. And so these Egyptians who had this great uh, desire for the afterlife began to believe in Jesus. 40 AD, the church was planted in Alexandria, Egypt. And get this, almost 2,000 years of continuous Christianity in Egypt. Pretty crazy. There's about 10 million Christians in Egypt that have been there for centuries. And uh, it's the largest population of Christians in the Middle East. So it's actually in very, very strategic. Now, they have a hard time sharing their faith with their Muslim neighbor because they have been persecuted. But our job and our goal is we reach out to our Muslim neighbors and friends and we say, this is what Jesus is like. This is who he is. This is what he did for all of us. And then we reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Egypt and we say, will you please, please, please help us? You speak better Arabic than I ever will. And we need you. And we're seeing on both sides the Lord do incredible things, which I'm going to share about in a little bit. Now, as you can imagine, though, as I've already shared a little bit, I haven't always lived in Egypt. I don't look Egyptian. Uh, I'm not Egyptian, although I, I, I think that and want to. And uh, as I shared a little bit about the Lord changed and got a hold of my heart in Chi Alpha. Now, I'm fast forwarding through a lot of my story, but how I got into missions is uh, probably not much of a mystery. You see, you probably know this already, but you guys talk a lot about missions. You put a lot of emphasis on missions. And one of the ways that you do that is you have missionaries come and speak, right? You go to World Mission Summit, you talk about missions, you go on mission trips. But another way is you read old dead guys and old dead girls who were missionaries and heroes of the faith, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Great. One of my favorites was William uh, and Catherine Booth. They were the founders of the Salvation Army. And uh, the Salvation Army is a little bit different now than it was at its founding. So they had these really crazy sayings. One of them was blood and fire. And they would shout it out. And they meant the blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit. They also had another little saying called soup, soap, and salvation. A heart to God and a hand to man. They were passionate about bringing people to Jesus. Uh, one of my wife's favorites was Elizabeth Elliot, and uh, Elizabeth Elliot is awesome. And guys, guess what? You can read Elizabeth Elliot too. It's not she's not just for girls. All right, you need to read some of her stuff. If you don't know her story, her and her husband and her family uh, went to South America, Central America, and their goal was to reach out to this uh, tribe that lived in the jungle that nobody had ever shared the gospel with. These are one of these three billion people that had never heard the name of Jesus. This tribe was known to be very violent, actually, to outsiders, but they made it their goal to reach them for the cause of Christ. And if you've ever read the book or, or have heard the story, eventually they did meet this tribe. And upon one of their meetings, the tribe actually killed her husband, Jim, and actually several other men that were part of their missions team. And Elizabeth could have tucked her tail and ran back to the U.S. with her kids. She could have left and said, they killed my husband, the very people we were trying to reach for Jesus. But she did the opposite. She stayed. And because she did, this, this people group who never had heard the name of Jesus, today, walk, they walk with Jesus because of that pretty incredible woman. There's some others. Like you could keep going. One of my favorites, Eric Little, if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire. He was an Olympic athlete. He won a gold medal in the Olympics and then gave it all up and became a missionary to go to China. Uh, if you've ever heard of Amy Carmichael, she was a woman who went to India 
way, way, way back, basically, when uh, if you were going to be a missionary, you're never going to come home again. And she went to India, and she rescued these little girls who had been put into uh, Hindu temples as prostitutes. These people were incredible. As you read their lives, you can't help without being challenged. They were people who literally uh, were history makers. They were world changers, and they challenged my life incredibly. If, if you've been going to church for a while or gone to Chi Alpha or read the Bible or any, heard any church lingo, you might have heard this idea that being a Christian and walking with Jesus is like running a race, right? Has anybody ever heard that before? That when you walk with God, that you're running a race. And now what would be more apt is that you're actually running a relay race. And you're not running alone, you're on a team. You see, these people here that we read about, that we talk about, have all gone before us. And these people here that are sitting next to you are all running beside you. You're not running this kind of individual race. The Bible has another word for it. They call them a great cloud of witnesses. And here's the interesting thing. The Bible describes these people I've just talked about as actually looking down from heaven on us. It's kind of weird, but they're looking down on heaven right now tonight. They're looking down at you and and they're looking with anticipation. They're wondering, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to make your life count for something? And not just anything, but something that will stand the test of time. Something that will last for eternity. Something that will count for a kingdom that is unshakable. And these people, when they get to the end of their lives, they don't look back and reflect on them and think about, oh, what, what did I do? Or was it so great? But when you live a life that's worthy, one of the things that you do at the end is you actually look ahead and you look to who is taking this baton from you. And, they, and you wonder, you say, they, they say things like this, will you take up this and continue the race? Or will you lose the ground that people like Jim Elliott gave their lives for? Will you lose the ground that people like William and Catherine Booth fought for so that those people who were undesirable heard the gospel? They're looking at us and they're wondering if you'll take up the baton from them or will you let it drop to the ground? Now here's a very important question. And let me, re- let me say it like this. I don't like to run, okay? It baffles me that people pay to run in a race. Has anybody ever paid to run in a 5K? Come on, guys. You can go run for free. All right. Now, what would be so utterly frustrating to me is if I were to run in a race and there wasn't a finish line. Doesn't that sound horrible? Like, what if they were like, we're going to have a race, but uh, you just got, you just keep going. Well, you know, we don't know where the finish line is at. So here's the question. What is our finish line? If we're running a race for Jesus, if we're running a race for God, what is our finish line? What are we trying to accomplish? Is it just actually the end of our life? Do we just live a certain amount of years and then that's the finish line? I don't think that's actually the goal. I think Jesus actually tells us very plainly in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. He says this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness in every nation, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. So this is interesting. Jesus puts forth this idea that the goal of Christianity, that the idea that we should cling to and strive for, is the gospel being preached in every single nation, so that every hear hears the name of Jesus, that every heart has a chance to hear the gospel explained to them and receive it for the first time. This is the end of our race. That three billion people that I talked about, once they hear the name of Jesus, that's our finish line. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to get to. Now here's a strange idea about this. What if we could actually finish that race? What if we could start something here as believers, as students, as people who are beginning our lives, what if we could start something that could bring the gospel to the places that have never heard? What if you guys could be the ones that take up that baton and at the end of your lives not pass it to somebody else? What if you could cross the finish line and the person that you're passing the baton to is actually 
Jesus. What if you could cross the finish line and say, it's finished. Here it is. We don't have to hand it off to anybody else. There doesn't have to be another generation that doesn't hear about Jesus in some far corners of the earth. Jesus hears the baton. Wouldn't that be an incredible honor to finish the race that Jesus started 2,000 years ago? That would be incredible. And here's actually what I'm saying. Not that we would be world changers and history makers like those people who've gone before us. But what if we could be world enders? What if we could be history finishers, history closers? Now that's an interesting thought because what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the end of the world, right? That's kind of weird. Usually that's like the Bond villain. He's talking about an end in the world. He's blowing everything up. Now, that's kind of a scary thought when we talk about ending the world, but it's only scary when you don't know what the end will be like. But we know what the end is like. And actually, we get a very incredible picture of this in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, you could put that verse up there. It says this, listen, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what our future is to be like. It's not so scary when we're looking forward to something like that. What if we could be the people who end every single war, every single disease, sickness, poverty, social injustices. Now, we're not the only people who are trying to accomplish this, right? There's a lot of doctors who are doing this, researchers, politicians, lawyers, militaries. But the truth is and has always been that there is only one person that can actually accomplish all of these tasks single-handedly. And his name is Jesus. You see, he's the great healer He can heal every single disease. He is the Prince of Peace. He can single-handedly bring peace to every single war. He can right every single social injustice. He is known as the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And yet, we, as we have the answer, as we have Jesus, there are still so many people who live in war and poverty and sickness and social injustice. And it's because they've never heard the name of Jesus. You see, there's so many places that are at war and they don't have peace because they've never heard the Prince of Peace. And they're always going to be that way until they hear the name of Jesus. You see, in the church, we often talk a lot about the second coming of Christ, his return, his imminent return. But there are still three billion people who've never heard of the first coming of Christ. Jesus came in the flesh to show us what God was like. He came to us face to face and flesh to flesh, and he said, this is what God is like, and he paid for our sins. And these people who live in scary places, we can't just beam television signals to them or send Bibles to them or the internet or the, or the, or the printed Bible. We have to go to them face to face flesh to flesh, just like Jesus came to us. And that is the only way that they're going to hear the gospel. So Jesus is waiting for us. He's waiting for us to fulfill the Great Commission. He's waiting for us to say yes. Now, here's another question for you. What stops us from doing this? Why haven't we fulfilled the Great Commission, right? 2,000 years of Christianity, And we still haven't finished what Jesus started. Why haven't we finished it? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. 
It's disobedience. We've been disobedient and we've been fearful. We've been too comfortable. We've said, Jesus, I'm all about missions, but if you call me, that's not really my ministry. I'm going to do what I'm going to do here. I'm going to have my own ideas about how I want to live my life, and somebody else will go to the mission field. But the words of Christ are clear. Go into every nation and make disciples of them. We've been too disobedient. We've been too scared to go to places that are scary and go to places that might disappoint our parents and go to places that might wreck our life and go to places that might put us in danger. We've got to be obedient to Jesus. I want to tell you some stories about some people who are disciples and be an obedient people to Jesus, and also what can happen when you're radically obedient to Christ. I met a man named Rami when I was in Egypt. Rami was Egyptian. He was born Egyptian. He was born a Muslim, raised a Muslim. And at one point of his life, he was living in Saudi Arabia. And while he was in Saudi Arabia, he was a devout Muslim. In fact, he prayed five times a day. He fasted the month of Ramadan, sun up to sundown, no water, no food. So devout. He did all the extra things, little extra things to make him a better Muslim. And he said through all of this that uh, he was actually so radical in his beliefs that if ISIS had existed then, he would have gone and joined them. That's how radical he was in his views. But through all of this stuff, he should have felt a satisfaction, but he began to feel a dissatisfaction. And so he began to look for something different. He said, all right, I'm going to look for a Bible. Now, as you can imagine, it's pretty hard to find a Bible in Saudi Arabia uh, because you can't have them there. And a lot of the websites that might try to reach out to them are also blocked. But of all places, he found a Bible on a Beth Moore website. And he began to read the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've never read that before, it's beautiful. It's the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. And he began to realize that there was something completely different about Jesus. And so Rami gave his life to Jesus. And uh, he came back to Egypt. He was attending one of our house church meetings that we host for people who want to know more about Jesus there. And he told us one evening that he didn't like to come to this part of town. And uh, we, we kind of asked him, why don't you like to come to this part of town? He said, well, when I returned from Saudi Arabia and I had become a Christian, I wanted to share my faith with my family. And so he began to share his faith with his wife and his two sons. And uh, it seemed as if his wife was really interested, but eventually he found out that she was actually recording him on her cell phone. And she took that cell phone and she went to his family and uh, she told him every, she told his family everything that he had said and let them listen to the recording. So they did what any good Muslim family would do, which was to confront Rami. So they got together before him and they said, Rami, tell us if this is true. Do you really believe these things about Jesus? And he said, yes, I believe them. And then they gave him a chance. They said, listen, Rami, you know what this means. If you don't denounce this, if you don't come back to Islam, if you don't give up all of this stuff about Jesus, then you cannot be part of our family any longer. Now, this is an interesting story, and it gets more interesting if you'll just put yourself in his shoes for a second. Because what if your mom and your dad came to you, and they said, listen, you can't go to Chi Alpha anymore. Don't go to church. Throw away your Bible. Or guess what? You're not my son. You're not my daughter anymore. Now, I know many of you aren't married, but it would be as if if you were married, if your husband or your wife came to you and said, if you don't stop believing in Jesus, I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to take the kids. You're never going to see him again. This is what Rami was faced with. Now, I can't imagine that it was easy, but in some sense, Rami had already given his life to Jesus. And so he said, I cannot give up Jesus. I cannot give up Jesus. Now, of course, they did what they told him they were going to do. They kicked him out. They said, never come back here again. And he told us that story. And he said, actually, my family lives right over there. And he pointed to this slum that our team lives next to. And he said, they live there. I'm afraid that I'm going to see them again and what they'll do to me. Now, Rami could have done all sorts of things in that culture where that would have been shameful and horrible to his family, but they would have accepted him back. 
But he did the one thing, the only thing that they knew that would guarantee he had to be kicked out of his family. It was as if Rami hated his family. That's what they said. It brings to mind a verse in Luke. I'm going to read it for you. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. To Rami, it was as if, it, to Rami's family, it was as if he actually hated them. Now, I don't think that Jesus is telling us that we have to hate our mom and our dad and our brothers and our sisters. But he's saying that we have to love him so much that that love might cause others to think that we actually hate them because we choose Jesus over them. Rami is a disciple of Jesus. He has radical obedience to Christ. If we want to reach the places on the earth that don't have the gospel, we have to have that same obedience. I want to tell you a few more stories. There's some incredible things happening across the world that you probably don't see. If you watch the news at all, if you watch Fox News or CNN or any of this, you probably only hear bad stuff coming out of the Middle East. But there's actually some pretty cool stuff that's happening. We believe that over the past five to ten years, there have been more Syrians that have come to Jesus than the rest of history combined. And I know that you're all very well, very well aware of what's going on in Syria. And I ask you to continue to pray for Syrians and pray that that thing ceases. But they're seeing what, what that religion is unmasked, and they're running to whoever's got their arms open which are Christians, and they're giving their lives to Jesus. Please continue to pray for refugees and, and talk about them. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus was a refugee himself. And so we'll take in people that were like our Savior. I want to share some other stories with you. You might have heard this, but many Muslims are having dreams and visions. And uh, it's pretty incredible when you hear a story about someone who's had a dream of Jesus. We had a doorman uh, in Egypt. Doormen are kind of uneducated and illiterate, honestly, uh, but they're, they're really, really hardworking, great people. And so often we'll share our faith with the doormen that are the doormen of our building. And we had a guy uh, named, I think you've had him here before, named Robbie, uh, and he was sharing his faith with his doorman. And now we like to hand out Bibles, and uh, that's a problem when the person can't read, right? So what we've done is we've taken these little MP3 players, we've filled them with the gospel, and we give that to people who can't read so they can hear it. So Robbie gave this guy uh, one of these MP3 players. He saw that he was listening to it over and over again. And one night, Robbie was having a conversation with him. He was sharing his faith, and the doorman stopped and asked Robbie, he said, Robbie, have you ever had a dream or a vision of Jesus? And uh, Robbie said, you know, I've never really had a dream or a vision. But then he asked the guy, he said, have you ever had a dream or a vision? And the guy looked at him and he smiled and he said, yeah. He goes, actually, Jesus came to me the other night in my dreams. And he told me everything that I was listening to on that MP3 player was true. And then the next thing, we laugh and we joke with Robbie about this. Because the next thing that Jesus said to this guy was, do whatever Robbie tells you to do. <laughs> and so small group leaders, pray that Jesus shows up in your small group members' dreams and says, do whatever your small group leader tells you to do. We had a young girl. She was 17 years old. She had a dream that a dove came down from heaven and turned into a man. That man took her by the hand and led her to a cross and said, This is where I paid for your sins. There is a book about me. Go find it. This young girl, her husband, or uh, sorry, her father was a religious leader. He was a sheikh. He was an imam. And so uh, she covered her head. She dressed very conservatively. For two years, she was walking around Cairo. And she would see these precious Egyptian Christians with crosses on their necks. And she would say, What does that mean? Is there a book about it? Can you tell me more about it? And these precious people were too scared because they were afraid that she was going to turn them into the religious police. And so for two years, no one would tell her what the cross means. One night after she had shared her dream with her father and her mom, her mother came to her in the middle of the night and woke her up and said, Listen, your, your father and your uncles 
and your brothers are all together right now. And they're deciding what they're going to do to you because of your dream. They don't like it. And she said, I'm scared for you. You need to get up and you need to leave and don't come back. She left and she was living by herself. And she began to have more and more hunger for who this man was in her dream. And she got online and began to search the internet. And eventually she got connected with a girl on our team named Bethany Burnett, who's also a Chi Alpha, same Houston State alum. And she began to disciple this girl. And this girl began to walk with Jesus. And during that time, we said, listen, we really want to create a place for people like you who've had dreams and visions and want to know more about Jesus and create a safe place so you can come learn more about God. And uh, do you know anybody else like this? And she said, oh, yeah, I know a lot of people like this. And so she introduced us to this whole group of people who had been kicked out of their homes who had dreams and visions about Jesus but had no idea what it meant, but it was so real to them that they left their families and left their homes in pursuit and in search of who this man was. And so we began to start a house church. She helped us start our first house church there, full of people. We would say 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10 people that we've met who've come to Christ have had a dream or a vision of Jesus One night, there was a girl in the house church, and she was experiencing some persecution, and she woke up in the middle of the night, and she saw Jesus sitting on the edge of her bed, and Jesus looked at her and touched her and said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then she went back to sleep. She was experiencing so much persecution, and that was what she needed. She needed Jesus to show up and just tell her it was going to be okay. She went back to sleep. She's walking with Jesus in this house church. I want to share one more story with you, and then I'm going to come to a close, and then I'll invite the team to come back up. One of the coolest things that we got to experience while we were there was we got to see a baptism, a baptism of a precious, precious Muslim man. His name was Ibrahim. This is just the Arabic version of Abraham. And uh, Ibrahim was born into the slum that our team lives next to, and he was born a Muslim, raised a Muslim. But all of his life had this dissatisfaction in his heart. And uh, we, had a, we have a summer internship at our training center where people come for six weeks and they're part of our team and they study Arabic. They interact with Egyptians and share their faith. We had a young man named Zach that came for six weeks, just six weeks. He purposed in his heart that he was going to share his faith every opportunity that he got. And so he would go to this coffee shop every single day, sit down and share his faith with these Egyptian guys who spoke English so that he could share in English. And uh, he said, I'm going to go here every single day. He noticed that after about a week that it was actually the same guys because coffee shops are territorial. You only go to the same coffee shop. If you, if you go to a different one, the owner of the other one's going to be mad at you. So after about a week, he noticed this, that it's the same guys. And eventually they, they came to him and they were like, Zach, we really like you. You're a cool guy. We like practicing our English with you. Stop talking about Jesus. No more Jesus, all right? But then he said, they said, listen, this guy over here, Ibrahim, super weird, super crazy guy. Uh, nobody likes him, but he, he doesn't like Islam. Maybe go talk to him. And so uh, he goes, all right. So Zach goes over and talks to Ibrahim. Ibrahim's not crazy or weird, but he's just dissatisfied with Islam. Zach begins to share his faith with him, and immediately Ibrahim goes, that's what I want. That's what I've wanted my whole life. And so Ibrahim is such an interesting guy. He, he, if, if you're a small group leader or a resource group leader, he might be like the person in your small group that you like lose the most sleep over or uh, you might pray the most for. Uh, as he began to walk with Jesus, he's a super intense guy, super rough guy. And uh, one time he was working and his coworker, who was a Muslim, began to tell him how he was going to like assault this Christian girl. He began to tell him, yeah, Ibrahim, I'm going to go. He didn't know that Ibrahim was walking with Jesus. I'm going to go assault this Christian girl. She can't do anything about it because she's a Christian. I'm a Muslim. Ibrahim got super mad, waited after work, and jumped this guy, beat the mess out of him. And as he's beating him up, he's like, going, don't mess with God's children. And he's like beating him up. Then he comes to house church, and he like sits down. And his knuckles are like kind of bloody, and he tells us like, hey, I did this. You know, I beat this guy up for the Lord. And... Uh, and then he goes, you know, was I right? And he just like asks us, did, did I do the right thing? And we had to go, oh, okay, how do, we, how, do we, how do we explain this to him? 
Of course, we set him down and told him, all right, we don't really beat people up for Jesus, although sometimes you want to. He's also a super troublemaker and kind of uh, uh, just he likes to make trouble, likes to make jokes, play jokes on people. One point, his family came to him and they said, Ibrahim, we figured out why you're not a Muslim anymore. Uh, you must be possessed. They're like, we figured it out. You're possessed by a demon. They call it, you know, a jinn, where we get genie from. You're possessed by a jinn. Uh, let's go to the mosque. We'll have the sheikh cast the demon out of you, and then you're going to be good. You'll come back. You'll be part of our family, everything. For some reason, uh, he decided, all right, I'll go with you. And so they go to the mosque, and on the way there, he realizes that he can do whatever he wants and get away with it because they're going to think, right, it's a demon. And so... Uh, he gets to the mosque, and uh, he's sitting down in the chair, and the sheikh, I don't know what they do, but he starts to, like, cast the demon out, and, uh, and he realizes, he senses Ibrahim, goes, this is my chance. And uh, he shrieks, like, all right, the demon's coming out. He goes, ah, and stands up, and then rears back, and he just slaps the guy across the face, full hand. The guy's turban, you know, flies off, and then Ibrahim, his family freaks out, and oh, the demon's coming out, and they, like, grab him and take him out of there. So then he comes back to the house church once again, and he's like, I got another one for Jesus. I got him. You know, I scored another one. So, of course, then we had to sit down and say, all right, we don't slap people for Jesus. Once again, although you might want to. During this time, though, he's walking through intense persecution. Eventually, his family gives up on him, and they think, we've got to regain our honor by taking his life. And so they begin several times to try to take his life. They beat him up several times. Comes back with cuts and bruises and wounds. He begins to sleep at a different place every night because he's afraid they're going to come in the middle of the night to take his life. As he's walking through this, he comes to the house church and the house church leaders and he says, I want to be baptized. I want to be baptized. Now, we thought, you know, of course you want to be baptized. You're walking through a lot of junk. You're being persecuted by your family. And sometimes when Muslims come to Christ, they're really angry at their family. They're really angry at Islam. They do things not out of the right reason, but out of a reason maybe as revenge. I want to get baptized so I can like stick it to my family and show them. And so we walked them through that. and We said, do you really want to follow Jesus? Do you really want to be baptized? Are you sure this is what you want to do? And are you doing it because you love him and want to commit your life to him? And he said, yeah, I want to do it. So we got together, our house church and the house church leaders and house church members, and we went to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is only about an hour out of Cairo. And so we get there, and as we're sitting on the Red Sea coast on the beach, and we're about to baptize Ibrahim, our house church leader begins to lead him through a profession of faith. If you've ever been to a baptism, the pastor will usually get up and he'll say, you know, uh, something like this, you know, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? So our house church leader said that. Ibrahim said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And then he said, do you believe that Jesus was really crucified, that he really did die, and then he defeated death and rose out of that grave alive, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father? And Ibrahim repeated all of those things. He said, I believe all of those things. Super sweet, super genuine. And then the last thing that the house church leader said was this. He said, Ibrahim... Will you follow Jesus even unto death? Even unto death. Now, if you've seen a baptism here in America, usually that's not part of the profession of faith that we ask people to do. If we did, we might have less people who were baptized, right? This was my first time I'd seen anybody baptized over in that part of the world, and so that was new to me too. I asked the, the house church leader after that, why did you ask him that? He said, when somebody comes to Jesus in this part of the world, they will face death. Figuratively or literally, their life will never be the same. And it may be demanded of them. And he said, if they're going to follow Jesus, they have to be able to pay and be able to take that cost and say, I'm willing to pay it. So we're sitting there, we're around him, we're laying our hands on him, praying for him. And he says, will you follow Jesus even unto death? And then without missing a beat, without thinking about it, Ibrahim at the top of his lungs screamed, I will follow Jesus even if it means death. Even if it means death. That verse in Luke 
at the end, of course, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and then it says, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Ibrahim loved Jesus more than his own life, more than his mom and his dad, just like Rami, more than any of their relatives, more than their old life. They wanted Jesus because he was real, because he was authentic, because he was, he was who they were made to be in fellowship with. And he found him. We took Ibrahim out into the water, baptized him in the Red Sea, beautiful, clear, crystal clear water. Old Ibrahim stayed behind. New Ibrahim came out. It was a beautiful time. In perfect Ibrahim fashion, the first thing that he did after we baptized him was pull out his cigarettes and offer everybody else a cigarette to see if they wanted to celebrate his baptism with a cigarette. We're still working on, you know, the sanctification process of Ibrahim. He continues to walk with Jesus. He continues to be faithful. These precious people are willing to give their all to Jesus. I want to give you a challenge tonight. As you think about missions, forget missions actually, as you become a believer in Jesus, as you walk with him, this is the commitment that we need to have to Christ. To be able to say, I will give every single thing up in my life to follow you, Jesus. And if we are not willing to do that, we cannot be a disciple of Christ. These are the words of Jesus. Now, it's interesting because in many ways, these same demands probably will never be made of you. Because we live in a place where you can walk with Jesus and worship him. But we need to be willing to do that. We need to make up in our hearts and in our minds that no matter what, we'll say yes to Jesus. No matter what, we'll follow him. He's always first. He's always what we think about. He is our integration point. He picks our future. He picks our jobs. He tells us where to go and what to do because it's always going to be best for us. It's always going to be worth it. You see, as I sit across the table sometimes and hear these incredible testimonies, why don't the worship team come, come up? I hear these incredible testimonies, and you can't help but, but feel sorrow because all of them are the same. They all say, I gave up this for Jesus. My family kicked me out for Jesus. I gave up a job. I gave up a career. I gave up my kids. I gave up my wife for Jesus. There's only one thing you can really say, right, as you sit across and hear these heart-wrenching stories. is something like this. I am so sorry, right? I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. I can't imagine it. What if I had to give up my two little girls? What if I had to give up my wife? What if I never saw my mom and my dad again or my brothers? I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. Without fail, 100% of the time, those precious people will sit back on the other side of that table and they'll look at you and they'll say, why are you sorry? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it every single time. Anything that you lay down at his feet is worth it. Anything that you give up, Jesus is worth it. Anytime you have to have a sacrifice, anytime you experience persecution, Jesus is worth it every single time. Some of you are here and Maybe you're just starting to walk with God. Maybe you've never given your life over to Jesus. I want to tell you tonight that he is worthy of your life. And that if you give your life to him, I'm not telling you that it's going to get better. I'm not telling you that you're going to get a raise or he's going to make your grades better or you'll make more money. Because these people that I just told you stories about, honestly, on the outside, seemingly, their lives didn't get better. But on the inside, in their hearts, and the way that they live their life, they're satisfied, they're fulfilled, they've met the maker of heaven and earth, and they wouldn't trade anything for it. They wouldn't trade anything for it. And so I want to invite you to do that if you've never given your life to Jesus. I also want to give you another invitation for those of you who call yourselves believers. If you sit here tonight and you say, I am walking with Jesus, what if we could be the generation 
that takes up the baton from those who've gone before us and lays it at the feet of Jesus. For all he's done for us, what if we could say, Jesus, we finished the race. We took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Maybe tonight the Lord is stirring something in your heart about that and you've never felt it before. As I told you those stories, your heart may have been pumping. As I talked about the unreached people group, the three billion people, maybe you've said, why is it that way? And what can we do about it? I invite you to explore that more. I invite you to tonight maybe say, Jesus, if you want me to do that, I'm willing to do that. And then begin to take steps. Tell your small group leader. Tell your resource group leader. Take a mission trip. Begin to take steps and say, Jesus, if you want me to do that, I'll do it. I'm going to pray with you. And then we'll go into worship. Jesus, we love you so much. Father, we thank you for what you're doing around the world. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our hearts, that we're part of something bigger. Jesus, that you've not called us to run a race by ourselves. We're not alone, but you're calling people to walk alongside of us, Jesus. And not only that, but you're giving us brothers and sisters like Ibrahim and Rami and these girls who've had dreams about Jesus. These are our brothers and our sisters. And if they were here tonight, Father, they would stand up here and they would testify of your goodness. And they would urge people to come to you wholehearted with open arms and say, Jesus, you're worth everything in my life. You're worth giving it all. And they would tell them their stories. They would show them their scars. And they would say, come to the foot of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world because he is worth it all. And Jesus, I thank you for those people. Father, Holy Spirit, as you begin to move and stir hearts and minds, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you not let us leave here changed, unchanged, but you'd only leave, let us leave here changed, Father. Solidify those things which you're beginning to stir, Lord God, and give them a point of action. Give them the next step so that they can be faithful and obedient to you in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. We invite you, Holy Spirit, come now.